Several years ago, I was, uh, really many years ago at this point, that's the depressing part to think about. I was doing student ministry, I was discipling a small group of guys, and we had been talking all semester about we're going to have a big kind of end of the year kind of celebration thing. We're going to go down to Philadelphia to Fogo de Chao for a big meal together. Now, I looked into it a little bit, and I mean, this is like the most expensive meal at that point in my life I'd ever eaten times like four my standards are pretty low, you know, so it's like Panera felt like an expensive meal. So this thing, it's like $50 for lunch or for dinner. Sweet goodness, that's a lot of money. So looked around, okay, hey, lunch is a little bit cheaper, so we're going to go. If you've never heard of this, it's, it's a Brazilian steakhouse. This, is, this isn't free advertising, but if you're going to send me steaks, I'm not going to say no to that. Um, and it's like an like all-you-can-eat kind of buffet. It's like this, this Brazilian style of cooking, and you have a little chip on your table, and it's gr- one side's green, one side's red, and they just walk around with meat like hot steak on these spits. And if you flip your card to green, they'll come give you as much as you want until you say stop. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. There's, there's, it's a meat paradise. So as we're going down there, I kind of talk with these guys just to kind of prep them for where we're going because I've heard they also have an amazing salad bar, amazing salad bar. And I love a good salad bar. I do. I'm not, it's not even being funny. I legitimately love a good salad bar. If you have boiled egg on a salad bar, it's like the siren's call to me. I'm just like, oh, I just got to go. Um, and this place, it's just the nicest salad. It's, it's got a huge wheel of Parmigiano Reggiano cheese with like a little knife. You just go up there and like hack out what you want. And I love cheese. But we had to, it's like, you got you to, gotta, guys, you got to be disciplined. You got to walk past the salad bar. You got to walk past it. It's going to be really good stuff. You got to walk past it because we're not here for the salad bar. We're here for one reason. We're here for me. I mean, that's why we're here. We are here for me. And it is just, it's the best steak I have ever had. We're there, we're like just flipping that card green, they're piling stuff on. I, I felt like I had, was in a meat, had a meat hangover afterwards. I mean, there's so much steak. But it's all about the steak. It's all about the meat. The meat's the most important part of the experience. That's why we went there. That's why we went there. You want as much of that steak in your life as you can get. And as we continue our series, Ecclesia, the ancient future church, we're going to look at a story today that that describes a similar single-mindedness that needs to apply to us as the church. There are lots of things that Christians can care about, but one thing needs to matter more than any other. We need as much Jesus as we can get. We need as much Jesus as we can get. So if you have your Bibles, you turn with me to Acts chapter 15. That's what we're going to dig into this morning. Acts chapter 15. And we're going to start reading uh, at verse 1. So it says, Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. 
Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. There's a lot going on here. So I want to give you a little bit of background, then we can dive into this. Just let's define some terms so we're on the same, the same page here. When we talk about Gentiles, we're talking about non-Jews. Non-Jews, right? Non-Jews, and people not from Jewish heritage, Jewish background, not part of the Jewish faith. Gentile, you have Jews and you have Gentiles. And Paul and Barnabas are early church missionaries. They're going out to communicate the hope of Jesus to the, in these sort of pagan, unchurched contexts. And they'd often stop at the synagogue first, talk to the Jewish community, but Paul's heart really got it, laid on his heart this burden to share with, with those who do not know Jesus yet, with the Gentile community. And so they're there doing this thing and this issue comes up. And the first thing that we're gonna look at in this text, there's really three aspects we're gonna focus on. And the first is there's conflict, right? There's conflict. And so what is the conflict here? Well, it says some people came from Judea, probably from the Jewish religious community in Jerusalem, and we're teaching these new believers out in Antioch, which is in modern-day Syria, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you can't be saved. So circumcision was required for salvation. That's the issue here. That's what they're teaching. And Paul and Barnabas were not having that. As the Bible tells us a story, sometimes we miss if we don't read it carefully or intentionally, that there's like, this is the real stuff that's happening to real people. There's heat here, right? In this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. That's like, that's as heated as the Bible's gonna get in some spots. That's saying that like there was intensity behind this stuff. This was a deal. This was a big deal. Now circumcision was part of the covenant that God had made with his people. He'd given circumcision as a way for them to be set apart, visually even set apart. And so, there are people saying, well, you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. And so that's fine. If you're a Gentile, you've come to know Jesus, that's great, but you need to be circumcised. Really what they're saying is in order to follow Jesus, you have to know Jesus, but you also have to be a Jew. You have to live like a Jew. You have to operate like a Jew. And this group of people is referred to as the Judaizers, saying we experience Jesus, but the practice of worship of Jesus, but we have to do that through Judaism. That's a big deal for this reason. There are people who are saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. If, if, if we get rid of that, aren't we getting rid of God? Aren't we getting rid of our faith? I mean, that's a, that's a key central point. We, we miss that, I think, because of the linguistic differences and the cultural differences. But to a Jew, that's part of their heritage. That's part of their heritage. It's a core issue for Jews. Sometimes we can look back and say, well, look, look, look at them. Like, they don't know what they're talking about. Like, this, it's embarrassing. You got these people that have their own agendas. And that's certainly true. People do have their own agendas. But what we miss is these are religious and devout people. They're trying to do the right thing. It's completely understandable how they could feel this way. It's because they are pious and devout they feel this way. Circumcision is a God-given sign of his covenant with his people. Setting that aside was not a simple thing. For many Jews at the time, setting that aside would have felt like a rejection of Torah and ultimately of Yahweh. They weren't crazy to care about this. They weren't crazy to care about this. It's not that they were valuing the wrong thing. It's that they were valuing the right thing wrongly. Does that make sense? They're valuing the right thing wrongly. Like it's completely understandable how you would end up here. 
But they're valuing the right thing wrongly because they're valuing it too much. They're valuing it above Jesus. They're allowing this to shape their worldview instead of Jesus to shape their worldview. A guy named Augustine, who was an early church father, a, a prolific writer, says it this way, the essence of sin is disordered love. The essence of sin is disordered love. What he means is it's not loving the wrong things. I mean, sometimes it's loving the wrong things. Let's not get crazy. If you like to rob banks, you love the wrong thing. Stop that. But it, it's loving the right things in the wrong order. And that's so true of us. That's so true of us. Sometimes the things we love are just wrong. Sometimes the things we love are, are neutral. They just kind of exist, right? But Oftentimes, the things we love are a good things. And when I say love, I mean the things that we value, the things that we order our life around, the things that are important to us. The things we love are good things very often. We get in trouble when we love them too much or when we love them more than the things that are most important, right? Having a good relationship with your kids is a good thing. Being good at your job, working hard is a good thing. Providing for yourself and your family is a good thing. Those are not bad things, but when we love them too much, when we love them more than the most important thing, we get ourselves in trouble. Because instead of experiencing our world through the grid of Jesus, we begin to experience Jesus through the grid of our world, through the grid of our our worldview, of our ideology. We shape it, Jesus, to fit us. Sometimes we as Christians convince ourselves that in our caring about something aggressively, we're really doing what Jesus wants us to do. And that's when we have to check ourselves. We have to check our motives. We have to check our hearts. Make sure that we aren't caring about the right thing about Jesus in the wrong way. There are absolutely some things that we should be willing to fight to the death for. There's absolutely some things that we plant our flag on and go, I'm not moving off this spot, off of Jesus, of who he is, off, of fight for what, he, what he's done for us. I mean, those are the core of what we believe. But folks, if you find yourself fighting to the death over a lot of things, your list is probably too long. It's probably too long. There's a reason at Calvary we talk about the framework of absolutes, convictions, and preferences. Because what we are going to build our church around, our lives around, what faith is based upon is the work, the completed work of Jesus on the cross, God's redemptive movement towards us through his son to rescue us from the brokenness of our lives and invite us into a relationship with him. That's, that's the stuff we're going to die on. That's the core of what we believe. Now, we're going to have things that God has laid on our hearts that we feel strongly about, but those things don't go in the absolutes bucket. They go in the conviction bucket, right? And then we're going to have things that we prefer, things that we really like, things that really connect with us. But those can't be absolutes either. Those go in the preferences bucket. We prefer a certain style. We prefer a certain uh, sort of feel in worship. We prefer a specific type of coffee in the atrium. We prefer donuts every week. Actually, no, I'm with you on that. That's that's an absolute. That's an absolute. Let's, Let's... We took a vote, donuts, we all agree. But we have to understand what goes in each bucket because what what we're watching right now culturally, folks, is that nobody has convictions or preferences anymore. 
Preferences have become convictions. Convictions have become absolutes. And so we're willing to fight to the death over a lot of things, over too many things. Tribalism has run rampant for us culturally. And as Christians, we're not exempt from that. We find ourselves doing the same thing, looking for people who believe the same things we believe, the same way we believe them, putting a grid on top of Jesus, going, you, you, you have to experience Jesus this specific way. Secondary and tertiary points of disagreement aren't secondary or tertiary anymore. Folks, what we need to understand when we look at this text, and frankly, when we look at a lot of the New Testament, when we interact with the religious community, is that sincerity of faith does not guarantee mistake-free living. Sincerity of faith does not guarantee mistake-free living. We can be sincere and be wrong. We can be sincere and be wrong because the perfect gospel filters through imperfect people. Perfect gospel filters through imperfect people. Anybody, you ever know one of those mail order uh, meal things? Like, like, you know, you Blue Apron or something like that. You know, you pick your meal and they send you the, the meal kit. You know, what I'm, you know what I'm talking about? Really? <laughs> Everyone's like, no, I make everything from scratch, Josh. I don't understand. I want your life. So Bethany, I've done that, you know, some different times. You pick a meal and they send you this really nice like recipe card and they send you all the right ingredients in just the right amounts and it seems idiot proof, right? It seems idiot proof. They sent you everything, you know, you don't even have to measure. You just kind of follow the instructions and you're fine. It seems incredibly, incredibly simple. But here's the thing. If you get distracted and you leave it on the burner too long, your dinner is going to get burnt. Just because God has laid it out for us clearly doesn't mean we get it right every time. Conflict arises in this story and in our lives when our loves are disordered. And we see that with these guys who came from Judea, right? They're preaching this gospel because they're going, they're caring about this thing that just, that makes so much sense to them, but they're caring about it wrongly because it's becoming equal with Jesus. So let's continue on. In Acts, verse 6 says, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. The second aspect of this story that's worth digging into is there's a reminder here. Peter gives this impassioned speech that really serves as a reminder. This is the big issue, right? It's, this is legitimately a big issue, and they dug into it. I imagine some very intense conversations, probably with some apologizing afterwards about some word choices and name calling. Well, this is intense. And Peter steps into this moment, and what's he say? He said, God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them. He says, guys, we got to look at what God has done here. 
He steps in and, and supports Paul and Barnabas and this idea that Gentiles don't need to enter Judaism to get to Jesus. People just need Jesus. And that's a big deal. Because in Galatians, we see Peter, we see, uh, Peter get confronted by Paul because he's not living this truth out. And so for Peter in this moment to acknowledge God's heart and mission towards the Gentiles and that they don't need to enter Judaism first is significant because he didn't always handle that situation well. What Peter reminds them here, the people that he's talking to, is the core of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, that the action here is God-derived, God-decided, and God-directed, that God is the actor here, that God is the one moving Verse nine says, God did not discriminate. And another way to say that would be he made no distinction between us and them. He invited them in. He, verse nine continues, he purified their hearts by faith, by faith in Jesus. That God is the one at work here. Verse 11 says, through the grace of our Lord Jesus, that we are saved just as they are. Peter's lumping them in together. Peter's proof is in verse eight where he says, God, who knows the heart? It's just a subtle way to go to say, we don't know. God knows the hearts. Show that he accepted by giving them the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. So what's he saying? He's saying, we're not the ones who get to decide this. God is the one who gets to decide this. And God has revealed his will by the way this has played out. And then he challenges them in verse 10 by saying, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? It's pointing to this idea that the law on its own could not save us. The law could only reveal our need to be saved. The law could only point to the ideal reality we were created to experience. It couldn't manifest that reality in our lives. Only Jesus can manifest that reality. He goes, why would you put them under a system we needed to be pulled out of? We need Jesus glasses. That's why we need Jesus glasses. We need to put on Jesus glasses and see everything, experience everything through the lens of Jesus. Jesus first, Jesus alone. Peter's lovingly, graciously, and strongly reminding them, we did not figure this out on our own. It's not that you're crazy to care about this, but we are forgetting that Jesus has come to set us free, not to enslave us to a new law. Essentially, what Peter's saying to them is, uh, guys, hey, uh, remember, we are uh, dumpster fires as well here. And we need to focus on the grace we've been shown and use that as the foundation of what we apply to others. It's funny to me reading some of this stuff because on one hand, you're like, man, that's just, that's some of those guys sounded awfully self-righteous. And then the same moment, it's like, oh, that's probably what I sound like sometimes. Because my heart is wired the same way. What Jesus wants for us is to be our first love and also the lens through which we view all our loves, right? Jesus wants to be our first love and the lens through which our loves are viewed because that love orders our lives correctly. When Jesus is first, everything else finds its appropriate place around him. You can be wrong about a lot of stuff, folks, if you're right about Jesus. 
And that's good news because we are all wrong about a lot of stuff. When we reorder our lives around Jesus, God transforms us and the spirit works in us so that we can understand where we are wrong. That's God's grace. God doesn't say, come to me perfect with everything figured out. God says, come to me honestly. Come and surrender to me. Come and acknowledge you can't and let me do it for you. Receive what I have done. I couldn't sleep last night. I got in bed and I just was laying there and I couldn't sleep and it and it felt like, it began to feel like a holy discontent, like God was poking on me a little bit, like God was asking me to talk with him. And it's late, it was like 1.30 or something, one o'clock, and so I quietly leave the room and I put shoes on and I just start walking around my neighborhood praying. And it, before anyone tells you humidity's not that big a deal, it was 73 degrees last night. I walked around my block for half an hour and I came home very sweaty. It's very unpleasant. I just spent time praying with God, talking with God. And what I felt like God was saying to my heart is my loves have gotten disordered. I needed to recenter around Jesus, around who he is and what he's done for me. Because my life is full and I've started this new job. You know, we're working on a house. I've got four small kids. I should have started with that. I don't need anything else. There's a lot going on. There's stress and there's chaos. And I, my balance had gotten out of whack, and it just felt like God saying, you need to recenter around me. Your life doesn't work correctly when you're not centered around me. I'm the nerd that reads the manual on stuff because I love to read and I love to know how things work. And folks, if, you, if you're here and you would call yourself a follower of Jesus, when we take our eyes off of him, when our lives are ordered around us and what we want, it's the same thing as buying this expensive, complicated tool, looking at the manual going, I don't need that. Forgetting to put oil in and destroying the engine 10 minutes later. Jesus wants us to orient our lives around him because our life just works when we do. I'm not saying it's easy when we do, but I'm saying it scratches an itch in our soul that cannot be scratched any other way. And Peter is reminding the council here what is most important. And he's reminding us as well. There's a lot of things for us to care about, but Jesus has to be first. Let's pick up in verse 13 and keep going. It says, when they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon, Peter, has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name among the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, after this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. What James does here is he points to, the, to a promise. It's the third thing we're gonna look at, the promise that's here. James is the brother of Jesus, and he's the guy in charge of this meeting, right? And before you think uh, nepotism, no, James wasn't in charge because he, he knew a guy, although that is like, I feel like I'd be willing to give that guy whatever he wanted to. Oh, you're, you're Jesus' brother? Can you put in a word for me? But James is in charge, 
He's a man of character and integrity. He was devout in his faith. He was a godly man who knew and who kept the law. And the Judaizers must have felt like he was their guy. James knows the law. James, surely James is going to support us. But James starts talking and he drops this bombshell in verse 14. He says, Peter has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. That is a huge statement. And if you're wondering how how, I don't totally get it. That's okay. That's what we're going to talk about. That's why you came. This is like the price of admission right here. It's a huge statement. By saying God chose a people for his name among the Gentiles, James was intentionally connecting Gentiles with Israel. The language of people whom God has chosen is used extensively and exclusively in the Old Testament for Israel, God's chosen people. In the Old Testament, nations and Gentiles always stood apart from Israel. But here, James connects them. He connects them. Saying Israel is not just the only thing God loves, but really God is, God's heart is for people. And he, and he continues that idea by quoting the Old Testament book of Amos. He says, listen, the words of the prophets are in agreement for this. For instance, let me explain how. And he quotes Amos 9, verses 11 and 12. In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls. This is what Amos says. And restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name declares the Lord who will do these things. In that context, that was their understanding that God would gather the nations to himself through Israel, right? That the nations would be gathered, but through Israel, that the nations would sort of assimilate into Israel and then come to God. But we see, if we look in Amos, in Isaiah, and other prophets, and we see the way James shifts this here, that that promise was always intended to be bigger, because Acts 15, 17 doesn't say that, that they may possess the remnant of Eden, which was a specific land near Israel. It says that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even the Gentiles who bear my name. Amos is reinterpreted in light of what God is doing in the Gentile communities. It's not a new mission. This is phase two of the original plan. God didn't suddenly say this isn't working. Let's try some new. God, this was God's plan all along. It's been God's plan from the beginning. God's heart has always been for the nations. The only thing that's changing is his methodology to reach them. He's saying this is who God is and this is what he's doing. That he invites us in together. And he says, it's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And there's an interesting nugget in this process. They discuss and they debate and they talk and they get into this thing and and then James makes a judgment at the end on what they should do. What's interesting is God could have made this explicit. This is a murky issue for them at the time. I mean, it's clear for us now, but it was murky for them at the time. God could have made it explicitly clear, but instead they had to work it out. They had to trust the Holy Spirit. They had to search the scriptures. Because God, as he often does, is allowing people into his mission and guiding them through his spirit. It's messy. It's difficult. But it's worth doing, and it's worth doing well. This is the early church, being the church and figuring out, diving into hard things and working through it together, seeking to understand the Lord's will, being willing to lay down their preferences, being willing to lay down even their understanding of it because their trust that God is guiding them collectively this way. 
The mess of human interaction and relationships was part of the process. It's a picture of humanity being invited into God's mission. And James sums it up really nicely. We should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. How do we make it difficult? Well, lots of different ways. Lots of different ways. But I think one of the biggest ways is we're not clear on what matters most. Think of it this way. Think of it like a NASCAR car, right? That's got sponsors all over it, right? You got stickers and companies and all these different things. And I, I, man, it just, if you looked at a picture, you'd be like, oh, that's like, who's, what team is that? And who's the, there's a lot of things. I mean, there's one, like, there's one big word, but there's like a lot of other words. And so like, what's, what's the most important thing? Like, how do we kind of know what to care about? But then think of the Phillies. They got one big name on the front, right? Same logo on their hat, same logo on their jersey. Like the, the same color scheme, like you know who this team is, right? They have one focus. They have one focus. We, we are often NASCAR. We got a lot of things we care about and it's not always clear. We need to be the Phillies. Have, what's our one, what team are we on? Because folks, James challenges them not to make it difficult because the gospel is difficult enough for people to wrap their brains around. The idea of surrendering to anything feels foreign to us. The idea that there's nothing I can do to be good enough feels foreign to us. The ultimate difficulty we face is in surrendering. Because often what we fall prey to is moralism, which is really just managing stuff around the fringes. We make it difficult for people when we add our own stuff into the mix, when we add our own baggage, our own hurts, our own expectations, our own ideologies, our own worldviews. We make it difficult when we decide, like it's not enough for people to just know Jesus. They have to know Jesus the same way we do. They have to care about things the same way we do. We cannot defend Jesus or pursue Jesus's agenda with actions and attitudes and behaviors that do not honor Jesus that Jesus would not use. The ends don't ever justify the means in the kingdom of God. The journey matters too. If we fight for things that honor God, but we do it in a way that does not honor God, we have missed the mark. Because folks, what people are doing right now, what our friends and neighbors and coworkers are doing is they're looking at Christians going, you don't look that different from me, but you got a lot more rules. I'm not sure why I'm interested in that. When we can't get our act together, we don't communicate the hope of Jesus to a broken world around us that desperately needs it. But God's heart is for the lost to come to him, for those that are searching and hurting. Because baked into our soul is a need to know God, and we feel the emptiness when we try and fill it with other things, whether we know what is ultimately to fill it or not. And we see the missional nature of God revealed here in, in the, the good news about Jesus that's laid out. This is not meant for a select few. It's good news for all, especially for those who seem far away from it. But we can't be that community to others outside until we can be that kind of community to each other inside. God rescues and redeems broken and lost and confused people. He gathers them in and we need to live in that truth and allow that to shape the way we love and interact with each other so that other people see that and we can draw them into it as well. When we look no different, people don't want what we're selling. God's love unifies us under Jesus 
and it calls us to a very specific kind of unity. Not all unity is good unity. There's a lot of Yankee fans in the world. Bad unity. This unity is unity in Christ. It's the picture of unity that we see throughout Scripture, the oneness of the Trinity in Genesis fleshed out all the way through to the unification of all things under Christ in Revelation. And this is an important idea, folks. It's oneness is what we're called to be part of, not sameness. Unity does not mean sameness. It means oneness. We can disagree about different things and respect those differences. I want to give you something to engage with me on. Just, you know, we'll just have like, we'll do a fun little thing, right? So I'm going to give you an either or, and you tell me which one you like. All right, smooth peanut butter. Put your hand out. Who's smooth peanut butter people? You're all brilliant. Chunky people. They're like chunky peanut butter. That's, I don't under, if I wanted to eat peanuts, I would eat peanuts. I've never thought to myself, hey, do you have any spread that'll just tear a hole in my bread? All right, but fine. So we have some smooth people. We have some chunky people. Okay, great. M&Ms, M&M people? M&Ms or Skittles, my thing. Who's M&Ms? Who's M&Ms? M&Ms? Oh, gosh. See, as soon as I said the other one, that, that turn, the tide turned. M&M people. How about Skittle people? Skittles? Who's, where's, where's my tribe at? That's right. Skittles. Taste the rainbow. Skittles. Okay. Coke people. Coke or Pepsi? Who's Coke? Who's Coke? All right. Who's Pepsi? There's a comedian that has, I can't, it's, I can't take credit of this. Comedian has a great line where he says, you know how you know Coke's better? Because if you ever ask for Coke in a restaurant and they don't have it, what do they say? Ooh, sorry, Pepsi okay? <laughs> it's, not, it's not my joke, but it is a good one. It is a good one, all right? Uh, mountains, who mountains or beach? Who's mountains people? Mountains or beach, who's mountain people? Mountain people, okay. Beach people? Or, I mean, because we are in, you know, Southeast America, shore people? Shore people, yeah. Okay, last one, uh, what do you put on a hot dog? Ketchup or mustard? Who puts uh, ketchup on a hot Who puts mustard on it? Let's go mustard first. Who puts mustard on a hot dog? Who puts ketchup on a hot dog? That was a trick question. You're just wrong. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's a trick question. All right, this is, this is, it's a silly example, but we have people who like different things in here, and yet we somehow manage to make it work and sit here. Like, I've seen chunky people sitting next to smooth people, and yet it still works. We can do this thing. We are often polarized by peripheral things. What we need to be is unified around the essential, around Jesus. It is not worth fighting about the other stuff. What it is, is worth fighting for Jesus, living for Jesus. Anything else is a waste of breath. And it makes sense if we think about it, right? Because we're able to bond with people who like similar things as we do. We're able to bond with people. You ever been to a tailgate at a sporting event? Like I was leaving the, the trolley barn a couple weeks ago and I, I complimented a guy's shoes and he saw mine and he complimented mine and we started talking. Like because we, we share something we're interested in, we're able to connect. Unity in Christ means we share the most important thing. Unity in Christ means this is our family. My brother and I are very different people, but at the end of the day, we are family, and that bonds us, that binds us closely together. When Jesus matters most to us, that's an awful lot of common ground to find with each other. Oh, you share the same thing I do that is the single most important thing in your life that your whole life is ordered around? Oh, I feel like we could probably talk for a minute. 
when our whole hearts and lives are reordered around Jesus, when we care about the most important thing first and view all other issues and ideas in light of Jesus, I see a lot of reasons to work to build relationships of mutual respect and care and very few reasons worth dividing over. And if it doesn't start with us in our culture, where will it start? If we can't love people we disagree with, who could we possibly expect to do that first? Because we have been called to do it. Because we have been loved first. Folks, we gotta be better. I gotta be better. But the hope is that we can. Not because we're gonna suddenly become better people. Sad news is we're... It's going to be the long, slow work of sanctification in our life for us to become less dumpster fiery and more like Jesus. But we can choose to say, we may disagree on something. We may disagree on something I value a lot. But if we agree on Jesus, then we can move forward. If you're here this morning or you're watching online and you call yourself a follower of Jesus, I want to give you three questions as we wrap up. Three challenging questions that Acts 15 brings up. The first is this, what's the most important thing in your life? What drives you? What's your life ordered around? And I don't want you to answer right now because some of you are just gonna say, Jesus, and it's like, I I get that. Like, we wanna say, but think for a moment. Not what do you wish was, but what in this moment is it actually ordered around? This should be a hard question to wrestle through. This should sting a little bit because we are all drawn to seek meaning and fill the emptiness in our souls with stuff other than Jesus. That's our broken nature we battle with. So this week, I want you to think through what, some, what are you living as is the most important thing? What does your life show to be the most important thing? Second thing is, where are your loves disordered? Where are you loving the right thing in the wrong order? Where does Jesus need to be the first thing in your life? That challenged me thinking about that. And the third is, where are you making it difficult for people who don't know Jesus yet to know him? Does how you talk or what you care about or how you live point to Jesus or does it distract from him? If you're here, you're watching, you're not yet a follower of Jesus. Man, we're so glad you're here. And what I hope you hear this morning is that God's plan from the very beginning was to move towards you, to meet you where you are and to rescue you, to draw you towards himself. The meaning and the purpose that you search for that you long to know, that's a good thing. Jesus is the answer for that. Why don't you bow your heads with me as we close. Father God, we thank you. We thank you that you love us, Lord. We thank you for the grace that you have shown us. We thank you that you move towards us in our rebellion from you. We thank you that you are a God of forgiveness, a God who, who knows us and loves us anyway. Father, would you challenge us this week to where are our loves disordered? that it's so easy for us to get out of whack and get out of balance. Father, we thank you that you invite us to you to be the thing that binds our life and guides us to be the foundation we long for, to be the home we desperately want. Father, would we be a church and when people look at us, they see Jesus. They don't see the, the secondary or tertiary things. They see Jesus. We thank you pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 